Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. You are listening to Missed Apex Podcast. We live F1. Welcome to Missed Apex Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Spanners Ready, and I'm joined by Matt to Rumpets. Welcome back to the shed, Matt. Well, thank you. It's nice to be here on an off week, finally. Well, yeah, I know. They have a bit of a race, uh, a, a break from the races. We've been handing out our Halloween candy, a tradition brought to our shores by you people. Yes, and our clever, awesome, and uh, fascinating inventions. Yeah, but it's all right. It's good fun. The kids go around. They end up, uh, you know, getting candy from the neighbors. And we have a good system. If you have a pumpkin, that means you can knock on the door. If not, you get left alone. I thought that means approach with caution. But uh, you're not fessing up the real reasons you like Halloween so much. Candy. The parent tax. The parent tax, yeah. You do get some. And uh, they have to go to bed at some time. They can't guard it all night but we have got a fascinating show i hope coming up for you this week i've got a plan you see i want to do some tech but we're gonna save that for the second half of the show we're gonna have 45 minutes of news first we're going to talk about some of the stewarding decisions revisit what we think the rules are around the Kimi raikkonen and fernando alonso giovanazzi type incidents we're going to talk about the championship because we've got some some championship maths to figure out as well we're going to lay on the line where we want to be which team do we want to be on where do we want to put our money we're gonna have a look at the fascinating battle for third place in the constructors championship because i think that's going to be every bit as thrilling as the championship battle frankly and also we're going to have a look at some of the underperforming teams and a bit of uh, driver news and, and maybe some team news if we have time and then we'll go on to the tech which will consist of vortices and tire squirt and stuff but hey matt a couple of interesting things how do you feel when you find out that 
people from within F1 might be listeners to the show. Uh, I think that is awesome. And I'm very impressed with us. I always feel ridiculous because I don't mind speculating wildly with a bunch of other F1 fans and then them speculating too. That feels okay. But suddenly when you know there's grown-ups listening, you go, oh, and you start analysing, oh my my goodness, I've slated the driver from that team so much. Well, maybe the people (laughs) listening have in their minds done the same. Maybe they have. So we've had, uh, you know, over the years we've had people from teams and, you know, we're talking about Derek and engineering here. We're not talking about Toto Wolff and and Christian Horner who just enjoy having an F1 podcast to listen to. But recently I had two new bits of feedback. One was uh, from the lower end of the grid and it was an engineer who said, just wanted to tell you, enjoy listening to your show. It's great. I enjoy your speculation. I enjoy it doubly when it's about our team and I know how wrong it is. Yeah, well, I was thinking this is probably the other reason they enjoy listening is just to see how wrong yeah. we could possibly get it. Yeah, and get the. I think we represent a, a spectrum of what some fans might think. So it might be interesting for those guys just to see kind of what the fan forum is saying. But a local drinking buddy of mine, you know, the kind of village dad where your wives become friends and then you're like, oh, well, you're not terrible. I guess we can waste some time in a pub moaning. That kind of friend. Yes. He was having dinner with a, 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 another friend who was a team member talking about his buddy Richie in the next village over. And he's saying, yeah, he does an F1 pod. And this team engineer says, not Missed Apex, not, not Richard Spanners Ready. He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It turns out, he said, he listens to it every Monday. He says a bunch of the guys in, in his team listened to it, which was like a thrill. And I, I was saying to my friend, well, that makes me feel nervous. And he said, no. The the feedback I got from this guy was, you guys don't pretend to be anything you're not. And I think I think that's fair. You and I, we can speculate and be dum-dums, but then we try and get some experts on as well. Yeah, absolutely. And to be fair, they do their fair amount of speculating as well. And, and it's good. And I think the team members that we have, you know, texting, DME relationships with, they also know that I've given up on scoops because I hate getting yelled at on the internet. So all I do is I pass any inside information off as my own wild speculation, and uh, and we see where that lands. Makes me look smart, Matt. That's my tactic. Uh, and it's a, it is a fine tactic indeed. Some people argue that it hasn't worked even, even with that kind of relationship. But I will tell you, we are still an independent podcast produced in the podcasting shed with the kind permission of our better halves. We aim to bring you a race review before your Monday morning commute. We might be wrong, but we're first... All the way from the Netherlands, our token Dutch F1 fan journalist, Jules Sagers. How's it going, Jules? Hi, Spinners. Going fine. Thanks. Uh, there's, I've noticed a lot of tattoos in in the Netherlands being posted. People are starting to tattoo Max Verstappen, 2021 world champion. They are, they seem to, over over there, you people, seem to think it's in the bag. Um, yeah, it's uh, on previous shows we discussed a bit uh, that uh, a sort of football fan uh, fandom uh, transferring to Formula One. And as you see over here, when football clubs um, tend to uh, become champion, people already started to tattoo the trophy <laughs> on their arms and the date of uh, when it's going to happen. And uh, yeah, the first uh, Max Verstappen uh, world yeah, champion coming. 2021 tattoos uh, have occurred. Um, Where's yeah. yours? Where's yours? I uh, I don't do tattoos. No, okay, fair enough. We are also joined from the Isle of Wight for, uh, by the tech man from Birmingham. That's what we call him, uh, Matthew Summerfield from Motorsport.com. Hello, Matthew. 
Hello, how you doing, mate? Yeah, I'm doing good, man. We are going to do tech in the second half of the show, but I want, for the first 40 minutes or so, I want, like, pure fanboy summers. I want you just, like, kicking off. I want you yelling, uh, just just screaming, at, you're wrong, and Stroll's the best. Yeah, I'm not a fan. I'm just passionate, that sort of thing. That kind of thing, yeah. That's what I want. And then we'll settle down into tyre squirt and vortices after that. Cool. Now, we've dragged you away from the golf course. I think you should quit golf summers. Come and do some sim racing with us instead. Uh, yeah, but that would mean I'd have to spend more money on equipment to try to make me better, when in fact I'm never actually going to get any better. Unlike golf, which is free and a constant haven of improvement, right? Yeah, exactly <laughs> that, yeah. <laughs> Let's get into some news. Big Dirty News. Yo, Matt, what's going on with the rules and stuff? The FIA, in fact, it was Massey himself, wasn't it? Made some comments about the Kimi Raikkonen overtaking after being quite rudely escorted to the edge of the track. Yeah, well, he sort of came out after the race and said, you know, um, not for nothing. The, the stewards made a choice when they looked at this incident, but it's not like it was a clear cut, no argument kind of incident. Because there were sort of two things going on here. One, you have sort of Alonzo, as you like to mention, vaguely escorting Raikkonen to somewhere in the vicinity of the edge of the track. And then on the other, you clearly have Raikkonen making an overtake entirely off the track. And at the time, he said the balance was that because Alonzo escorted him there, they were, were not going to punish the overtake. But he said, you know, it's still something that needs to be looked at. We're going to discuss it with the drivers before Mexico because we want to have a consistent standard of how to approach these sorts of things. Uh, Jules, how do you see that? Because for me, it was the contact that made the difference. Um, when, at first, I thought ah, this is this is not unnecessary by uh, Alonso to to force him so wide. I mean, he could have stopped early and and get the overtake. But when I saw the onboards, especially the Alonso onboard, it seems like they clipped. Yeah. Before they hit the apex, and that makes uh, Alonso um, sort of uh, snap a bit, and 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 maybe push Raikkonen a bit more outward than he initially wanted to. So that this is Summers. This is the sort of a clause they seem to have invoked, which I think is in the rules somewhere. Which is if if a car has been has made the effort to be on track, but there's been a collision or whatever. There was some kind of good faith clause, which is like, wow, you weren't trying to do that. So crack on. Yeah, but that, that that's always difficult, isn't it, to try and manage those situations. And I think that's where sort of the arguments appear, because you get these situations where it appears that one driver's then been favoured over another. Um, I mean, at the end of the day, I thought we'd already solved this with the Bradley Philpott lane system. <laughs> uh, shouldn't, that, shouldn't that solve this very kind of situation? Well, what I want to see is I want to see... And- if I want to see if the outside car holds its ground and doesn't go off the track and the inside car drives into him, I, I think that should be a penalty. So, or, or that car on the inside should be uh, accused and be seen to be to blame for that incident, Matt. Is that too simplistic? I think we've just been conditioned to the outside car just giving up and jumping off. In the Alonso case, just give Alonso the penalty because the car was there that couldn't have gone any more off track, and you've driven into him. Well, give Alonso the penalty, but make Raikkonen give the place back. I mean, I think that's kind of the, that would be the standard. 
uh, you could say Alonso drove him off the track. And as we saw from the decisions out of Austria, that the outside driver is now required to be reckoned with. Now, you know, I personally feel like if you were behind the inside driver on the exit of the turn, there's a certain amount of reality that you're going to have that you should cope with because yeah. driving close to each other like that, it's like a duet in music. You sort of have to cooperate with each other to a certain extent. And if you don't, there's going to be contact. Yeah. So I, I, I think I've made a mistake uh, in the past, believe it or not, I made an error when in Austria, I thought that was contact between Norris and Perez. I, I thought Perez had held his ground and Norris had hit him. Actually, Perez jumps out of the way and scrambles to stay on, but he actually goes onto the grass and slows down. So that was actually yet another example of a driver getting out of the way. But I, wa- I wonder if the stewards might have treated that as if there was contact, because I, I thought there was uh, initially. So that's what I'm looking for. Is there the consistency where if the outside driver doesn't move or can't move because it's gravel or, or grass, then that's the only time they start to get harsh on the inside driver. Uh, c- imagine if they had said to Raikkonen, yes, I know you've been punted off defending that position and staying off track, but please give the position back. That wouldn't have been right. Summers? Yeah, I think it'd probably been hold my beer would be the comment from Kimmy in that situation, to be honest. Yeah. But, you know, this this is the problem, isn't it? And we, we've got the two most experienced drivers there in that situation, and we're still having an argument about who should share that part of the track mm. and the rules that outline what they actually do in those situations. So, you know... Formula One's been around for how many years? We're still making the same arguments. And I know there's going to be some talk about this going into the next race. But it's, again, I don't think it's something that can be solved because sometimes there are just situations where certain corners aren't the same as other corners on other circuits. And that does play into some of these decisions, I feel. Uh, Matt, there was a quote, wasn't there, from oh, from motorsport.com that you fished out? Uh, yeah, it was um, a marginal call. Um, there were two elements. and. You know, so they made the decision to leave it as it was, but that they would look at it. And to me, the interesting thing here is it was Raikkonen initiating an overtake. This is not Alonso shoving his nose up the inside trying to make an overtake. Alonso was ahead. He was clearly ahead until after Raikkonen went off track. And from that point of view, if we ignore the where he wound up and, you know, was he tapped and therefore had no choice to be there or did he choose to usher Raikkonen to the edge of the track? If we look at that just on its own, then Reichen did make an overtake off track. And I, I've seen other people, you know, and not just this season or last season, but going back to like the mid 2000s. I remember, uh, I think maybe it was a Rosberg Hamilton in one of the desert races. But Rosberg just ran him totally off the track, but Hamilton kept his foot in. And they're like, yeah. nope, sorry, you got to give the place back. Yeah, I don't know. There'll be, there'll be people screaming at us. There'll be people screaming, just let them race and put gravel everywhere. I don't like gravel. I don't like the flippiness of it. I know no one's going to accept my, well, if you go off track, your engine slows down by 70%. So there's a good incentive to get back on track. No one's accepting that at the moment. Although I I bet, I bet you anything, 10 years time, that it's that will become so simplistic and so obvious that that will be employed. And I'll say, I was saying that from the beginning. And people will say, what? No, we don't remember. And I won't remember what episode it was on. And I won't be able to prove it. They could yeah, just but... make it, they could just make the tarmac slippy like we had in Germany that once, 
uh, would work exactly the same as your power cutting scenario as well. Yeah. So I guess uh, France has gone part of the way there, hasn't it? With its it, what? Let's do like a more extreme version of that, and then just get like a real kind of a real, like real gritty tire ripper that you're going to lose two laps tire life when you go off. Something like that, Matt. Yeah. Well, we we've seen slightier suggestions we've seen you know obviously in france they do damage to the tires the issue that is always going to be brought up there is you know what if what if i'm there through no choice of my own and i'm getting extra punishment for it yeah all right well we'll see how that pans out and no doubt we'll argue about that endlessly uh, in the off season as well but i think it's time to talk about the title fight <laughs> Here at Missed Apex Podcast, we've had many arguments about which title is more important, the World Drivers' Championship or the World Constructors' Championship. Now, looky, looky, Matt, look at the situation we find ourselves in, which is that they are kind of very close in both those championships. And you and there is situations, there might be situations where they might have to favour one over the other. You know, they, we've already seen it with, with Red Bull, where Perez has been sent back or, or had, had to make sure that he steals the fastest lap from Hamilton or, or make sure he doesn't steal the fastest lap from Max Verstappen. So it's unlikely, but there could theoretically be a situation in which a team might have to choose between those two titles. So what I want to ask all three of you here, and Matt, you, go, you, go, you get to go last because you've always been against me in this argument. What do you choose? Okay, so you are, I put yourself as a, a Red Bull-sided person, a Max Verstappen-sided person, Hamilton, Mercedes-type fan. What do you choose? Which You can only have one, Jules. Which title do you want this year? Drive a title every time. Yeah. I mean, it, even for, for Red Bull, um, have, having been out of uh, contest for, uh, for the Constructors' uh, title, uh, still, I mean, f- as far as exposure goes, as far as marketing goes, it, it must be a thousand times more valuable to them to have Max Steppen win the title than to become the constructor winner nobody even reads about. And when it comes to Mercedes, um, I mean, they've they've won seven constructor titles on the trot now. But of course, for them, the same thing goes as if Hamilton breaks Schumacher's record, that's just so much more uh, yeah. value to that. Yeah, I, that, that's what I think as well. You want to do your marketing next year with the champ. That's way more marketable. Summers, what, which one do you choose? Well, I'm on the fence with this. Oh, as, here as we I've, go. No, I've always said that I feel that the Constructors' Championship is, is more valuable um, if it's marketed correctly. But... From a fan perspective, I believe because of the way uh, people consume Formula One, that the, the drivers' championship is far, far more important, and then that does leverage obviously more in terms of the commercial aspect, as as Jules has already mentioned. So, if it if if it comes down to it, I think it's the the drivers' championship that you have to put your weight behind, just purely because uh, you know it, it works from multiple aspects, and that's where I've always said that uh, the likes of Honda, Renault. Uh, and Mercedes, Ferrari have a bit of a problem in their marketing spend from a, a power unit point of view because they get so little recognition yeah. for what they do uh, for the championship as well. People love the drivers, though. They're the heroes. They're the gladiators. And as, as much as that might might irk the team of a thousand people making, you know, they might be sitting there going, well, the driver's ballast, essentially, 95 percent. I don't know how true that is. 
the glamour is around, you know, these gladiators. And they're the heroes. They're the ones that the kids on the whole look up to and want to be like. Now, Matt, you have been traditionally wrong about this. Do you wish to change your mind now and, and accept finally that the Drivers' Championship is the, the better one, the more important one? And how long have you known me? Eight years. Yeah. Yeah. No, of course I'm not going to back down. But right. I will say this. It's <laughs> contextual. If I'm Mercedes, the driver's championship, as Jules mentioned with uh, Hamilton breaking Schumacher's record, is everything this season. I, if I had to pick one and I'm Mercedes, I'm picking the drivers because I think the marketing value of that achievement would eclipse anything I could do with the constructor's championship. So yes. in that sense, I agree. The driver's more worth it. But if I'm Red Bull and I'm the first team to beat Mercedes and the only team to beat them in this regulatory era before it ends. Okay. Well, I think I can make some hay, as Summer says, with that. Plus, I get the extra cash. Hang that on. comes with winning instead of being second. Uh, Matt, um, what, what would it uh mean to people what would it what would it say if red bull racing become constructors world champion it it's probably to almost everybody just still the energy drink um uh, uh can you know i think the real value in constructors championship and becoming the best in that uh, stems from the days that you had the, the real constructors, the, the, the Williamses, the, the McLarens, the Ferraris, if you'd like. Uh, the ones that building a car from scratch uh, in, in the garagistas, you know. And, and You're going to get a shot, Jules. Are you saying that Red Bull aren't a real manufacturer? Not a... I'm going there. Oh, I'm going that's there. where you're going. Okay, yeah. so you're saying from a marketing point of view, they, they'd be better off putting their eggs behind the Verstappen basket and marketing that. Is that what you're, yeah, that's so what you're driving and, at? But, and especially, um, I think, um, to whom would that really mean something um, apart from Red Bull personnel? Okay. I, I, I don't, does anyone remember uh, how many titles Red Bull won as a team, as a constructor in between 2010, 2013? Matt? I think it was four. Yeah, Summer's agreeing for. So look, this is really interesting from my point of view because there could be a scenario where they will use Perez to whatever suits them best. So let, let's talk about the fastest lap example. So are you saying, Matt, that Red Bull, if they, are, if they have a chance to win the Constructors' Championship, but by doing some trickery with Perez, they lose the Constructors' Championship because he drops down the field, they sacrifice his strategy, which bins him out of uh, the, the top five, but that does take away points from Hamilton and hands Verstappen the title. You're saying don't deploy Perez like that. Go for the the constructors' title and have Verstappen lose to Hamilton. That's no way. Surely not. Well, I'm just. I'm not sure. I'm saying that exactly. Your it's because, your call because you, because because you're giving me you're giving me the I can have both scenarios. No, I'm not. No, I'm giving you. You pick one. You literally have to pick Verstappen champion or Red Bull champions. Yeah, and if I'm Red Bull, I think I can make the constructors work. I think that's. A, I think. I think if it's a better bet, it's. I think Red Bull will pick the one they think is easiest for them to get. It's, I think if you ask them which one Red Bull wanted, they would probably. Eh, I don't know. I mean, Hamilton is a worldwide figure. Max Verstappen is not. Red Bull is a worldwide brand. Honda would be pretty happy if they got a constructors championship out of it. 
And I'm fairly sure they could leverage Verstappen's number of wins. But here's the thing. They're going to walk away with, we are a fizzy drinks company that beat the most dominant force, manufacturer force that Formula One has ever seen. And we were the only ones who ever, ever did that. Okay. They can go, okay. they can coast on that a very long time, regardless of who their driver is. I, I need to counter this fizzy drinks thing. I see Red Bull Racing as a, a racing team. To me, in my mind, oh, I'm yeah. like, oh yeah, I mean, yeah, when I was out, you know, in my 20s, yeah, it's what you put with vodka and then it made you stay up all night till like three o'clock and then you realise you've never been more tired or hungry in your life. But apart from that, like I, I 100% see Red Bull Racing, Christian Horner, Helmut Marker, all those guys, I see them not only as a, a proper quote unquote racing team, but they, I see them pretty much as a works team. I think that will be solidified. And I, and I think they're part of the DNA of, of modern Formula One. So I I would ne- I would fight against dismissing them as a fizzy drinks company. To my mind, oh, I'm not I'm not dismissing them. I'm saying from a marketing point of view, if I go out with that message in the world, we're a fizzy drinks company that beat the world's most dominant Formula One force ever, and the only ones to do it. I'm saying you know you could sell some more fizzy drinks with that. And at the end of the day. That's what they're looking for. Summers, come on, come on. T- tell Matt he's wrong here. You can you can keep Perez where he is and win the, the constructors, or deploy him against Hamilton and win the drivers' title. What do you what do you think they would do? Uh, what I think they would do is they will deploy Perez, and I I, I firmly believe that's what will happen. Um, I do think there's going to be a tactical element to the end of this season. I don't think. Um, it's as plain sailing as we quite think it is. There's still a number of races to go where things can happen. Yeah. Uh, you know, outside influence can make a big difference. I mean, we have to remember Massa was champion for 20 odd seconds in 2008. He wasn't. So, no, he wasn't. He was never champion. You, you know what I mean. You know where I'm coming from. Um, it can go right to the wire. You know, the, there's still lots of permutations, and I do see the fact that we are going to end up in this situation where there will be some tactical element deployed, whether it be from Red Bull with Perez or indeed Mercedes with Bottas. Yeah, of course. I, I think at the moment, like we can talk about the championship condensations coming up. I, I still I feel if you'd have had this conversation five races ago, you would say Bottas is the more useful number two. I don't think that's the case at the moment. I think uh, I think Red Bull have got a weapon in Perez to fight this both titles. Well, especially now that they appear to have sorted his setup and driving issues for him. Yeah. Um, which is, uh, which I have seen reported that, that he is now very happy. And I think you can look at it, how he did in, in Austin. Well, it's performance wise, performance wise, it's been three races in a row. If you include Turkey, where the, the rain came down at the end and he made the wrong call. But like being up there wise, yeah, three races in a row, it does look positive. Hard to judge Bottas's usefulness because they they just give him a new engine every single racer and put him put him at the back of the grid. All right, here's my next question, though, for you guys. I'm going to give you the choice of which car to go back in. OK, you are Sam Beckett. You get to go back to the past and put right what once went wrong. Ask your ask your old nerdy uncle. So you're Sam Beckett, Summers. Which driver car combo and and if you whichever driver you jump into you get all their skills and all their traits which driver car combo are you jumping into for the rest of the season you choose hamilton w12 wow been there been there done it got the t-shirt can kind of make things happen when they shouldn't be able to happen um yes i 
do believe that the car is slightly adrift from the Red Bull under certain circumstances this year, as we've mm. mentioned in the past. Um, but I think when it comes down to the, the crux of it, Hamilton's got the T-shirt seven times. I was expecting resistance. I thought I was going to be the lone person bringing that point of view, which is I would still... The only thing I disagree with is that I still somehow have, have some faith that everything they've been doing with Russell's engine, allegedly, and Bottas's 17 engines is going to give them one last push. I think they've got still got something up their sleeve, and I'm sure you can address that in the tech section later. But yeah, I would still, in this situation, 12 points down, five races to go, I would still want to be Lewis Hamilton in that Mercedes. Jules, choose. I disagree. Good. Uh, yeah. <laughs> That's fine. Um, and not even uh, uh, for driver or car specifically, but... I think for the, the the picture that this whole season has painted. And um, if you just look at how many times uh, Verstappen and Red Bull have nailed it uh, when they should, and how many times they took some when they shouldn't have, because it was Merck's track or uh, Hamilton's to win. Uh, I think the dice has rolled towards them too many times this season and I just don't see it uh, going any other way now yeah I suppose you if you jump in the Mercedes I suppose you are inheriting the the tendency to just be second best I won't even say to mess up tactically but to come off second best Red Bull have been have been beating them so maybe that's part of it you want the Red Bull strategy department this season yeah yes yes mm-hmm. please yeah matt where are you where are you jumping into well as usual i'm going to hedge every possible bet uh, on the one hand if i'm looking at the cars and the power units up until now i think red bull has 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 the advantage has had the advantage right now what we don't know is whether or not mercedes has some more to bring in the power department because it's one of the things we'll talk about later, but it's been rumored that there's going to be some extra pony showing up for the last five races. And that, that could very much change things. Let's get a a quick spoiler for that. Uh, Summers in a word, getting more power for the last few races. Uh, Possibly quite possibly. (laughs) We'll we'll see later in the show. Brilliant. I might even stay awake for, for that bit when I, when I produce that. Okay. So uh, let's uh, Matt go on then. But the other thing I want to talk about, which is, I think, uh, Summer's argument that, you know, one of them has got the T-shirt seven times. These last five races, you're entering a vortex where the smallest mistake, not just by the driver. I mean, when we talk smallest mistake, oh, here I am in practice three. I spin the car. I back into the wall. And now I need a new gearbox. Five places, game over. I mean, we're talking about tiny mistakes things that would normally never not would not matter at all not just by the driver but the team any mechanic makes any mistake any race engineer makes any mistake at all the pressure on everyone in those teams is going to be spectacular oh yeah the the heat is definitely on one of the most commonly cited championship maths connotations that has been going around is that if max verstappen wins the next two races so if he goes out and he wins at hang on let's list what the five races coming up are so it's mexico then brazil then we have qatar saudi and then it's going to be uh, abu dhabi as well so if max verstappen 
goes and wins two races at high altitude with the fastest lap, he can cruise home in second place. Nico Rosberg 2016 style. And that, if you're Red Bull, that gives you like a real target for the next two races. And I think the pressure is on you know, the opposite side as well, because you go to Mercedes. Right? If we have two more, if we have two more Austins, like we're in genuine trouble here and it's no longer in our own hands. Whereas at the moment, I'm I'm with Summers. I still think, despite it being 12 points to the deficit Summers, it is it is still in their hands. They can control, they can go and win it. Once they start needing uh, away goals and, uh, and other teams to lose 6-0, that's when it gets complicated. Yeah, but... I get the argument of Red Bull winning the next two races or, or Verstappen winning the next two races. Um, but if we go Verstappen winning the next two races, Hamilton coming second, and then you just reverse those situations at the next two races, we've still got the finale to go. Yeah. Uh, and we're still in exactly the same situation. I know we've got permutations around fastest lap and obviously um, the sprint or sprint race or whatever the hell they want to call it next time round. Oh, God, I forgot um, about that. Brazil. Brazil. Oh. Yeah. So, you know, we have got other permutations to throw into the mix, but, you know, I do think that there's still plenty to go in this uh, in the battle. So, Matt's three points, right, for that sprint race. That's yep. The sprint race now is like a super vital part of the championship now. Yeah, so instead of 40 total points between first... So I all of these are calculated first to second. If you assume mm. first also gets fast lap, it's an eight-point difference between the two. Yep. Except for... At Brazil, where there's an extra three points, so that could be eleven. Yeah, so, so uh, hang on, at which Brazil, one you win is also going to kind of matter a lot. That three points isn't really three points. It's, I mean, this is a six point of summers, isn't it? In football, in football terms, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, but it's not three points either because doesn't second and third place get points as well? Oh, do they? Oh, I didn't know. Two that. and one. There oh, you go. Okay. So the ah. gap could literally be one point. You know oh, that. Right. It, but at the end of the day, I, I always said at the start of the season that I was very frustrated by the fact that the sprint uh, could become involved in the overall championship. I know you can say that oh, we, we all know the rules going into a season, but for something like this to have come along and then it be part of what has changed the uh, you know the overall result could be uh, quite galling at the end of the at the end of the day as well. And fast lap. Fast lap was not a thing last season, but but it has changed everybody's calculations and may well, as Spanners rightly pointed out, it may well come down to someone making a choice to give up the Constructors' Championship to go for the fast lap. And then you certainly hope that the driver who is assigned to do that won't run into traffic and will be able to pull it off. Was it really only this season that the quali- that the uh, fastest lap point came in? No. It was around last season as well, wasn't it? Anyway, but your point stands. It's it's recently in, in any in any case. Yeah, I mean, compared to compared to well, okay, I'll give you last year because it was such a strange year. But compared to any previous championship, we we'd be having an entirely different discussion without that extra point floating around. Yeah, and look, what everyone is talking about is okay. This is. Mexico is a Red Bull track. Uh, Brazil is a Mercedes track, etc. And also people have forgotten that it's double points in Abu Dhabi. Still double points in Abu Dhabi, right? No? They dropped that. Oh. Unbelievable. <laughs> 2015. <laughs> that was only 2016. I think they did it, it once. It was 2015. Yeah. No, it was 2014. It was 2014. And there was a gearbox failure for Nico Rosberg. And oh, had, yeah. had that gearbox failure randomly been in Lewis Hamilton's, 
Rosberg would have won that title on the strength of double points. Imagine the scenes if that had happened. We've seen Mercedes and Red Bull out on like parts that cost like five pounds. Yeah. Like, like it just, everything is on eggshells from here <laughs> to the end of the season. It's just remarkable. Okay, Jules, let's talk about yep. the, the tracks belonging to certain teams. We're, we, high altitude, everyone writes off Mercedes. Any, anything with big braking zones, that's Hamilton territory. Anything that Mercedes have won in the last seven years also gets written off as, as Mercedes territory. Is there anything to this? Can we tell? Can, can past performance lead us to future results? I think this season has showed us that um, it's not that straightforward this time. And Merck tracks have gone to Red Bull and vice versa. Um, and I took a dive into um, where this conception comes from, maybe, uh, especially over here in, uh, in the Netherlands. Yeah. There's this belief that, okay, the next two races, those are really max tracks. And if he wins those two, then, well, et cetera, like we just uh, uh, yeah. discussed. I think what, what should be t- taken into account is that um, uh, from the remaining five races, only three of them we have raced before, yep. Mexico, Brazil, and Abu Dhabi. Um, but be, most of that consumption is based on recent years. But what we shouldn't forget is that in those years, um, we've had 13 races on those three tracks from 2016 on when Max oh, was okay. a Red Bull. And, but 10 of those races, Hamilton has already had already won the championship. So, ah. and two times he won it in Mexico, the first of those three races. So, um, if you take that into account, like how much uh, would he have pushed uh, yeah. all those times and how much would Merck have pushed all those times? Because they, uh, bar one time, they already secured the uh, Constructors' Championship I, even bef- before going to Mexico. I think that, that point is, is a very good point. The one exception I want to make is that hasn't Hamilton won the championship in Mexico a couple of times? Like secured yeah. and, and then... In those races, he was ne- not on the podium for either of those two, and they, yeah. and they, you know, they had the podium, and they had to run down to him to say, "Oh, well done, you know, you're the champion." And those races, you could argue, they were pushing, and they still were relatively weak at Mexico. Um, it's not, it's not that um, simple. It was um, 2017 when um, uh, he won the title there, uh, coming in ninth. Yes, but he uh, had a rear puncture. In turn into turn uh, one when Vettel hit hit him, so the 2017 race for for Hamilton. Um, I'm became, glad you yeah, I'm glad you reminded me of that. I would not have yeah. recalled that in a million years. Yeah, yeah. So Verstappen won that race, and Hamilton, you know, was just uh, in 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 the back of the field trying to recover from that lap one uh, puncture. Yeah. So it's 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 uh, it's not a, a representative um, a result really, and. Um, uh, the same goes uh, for uh, for uh, the last time out in Mexico, 2019, when Hamilton won and Verstappen um, came in sixth. But uh, he had been aggressive into turn one, hitting uh, uh, Hamilton. And then yeah. later on, I think lap five, he, he dived into uh, the inside of Bottas uh, going into the stadium and he just ruined his front wing and he had to come in. And so he ruined his own race. So 
all these results, especially in Mexico and Brazil, um, they have been uh, tampered with. Yeah, so they've say. been skewed. I'm so glad that we went down memory lane with that map because yeah. obviously Vettel was still in the championship. He'd had a very strong start, yeah. but it had kind of tailed off a little bit. He was technically still in it. And it was a very cynical move holding on down the inside. I remember us being all fighty about that at the time. Yeah, um, and I do still think we can look at the tracks and look at the cars and 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 at least based on what we know say well maybe maybe this will be an advantage for this team maybe this will be an advantage for that team and as far as mexico goes uh, th- there's three things i want to i want to ask and i'm going to ask summers because he will know more about it than i do as he grimaces in pain and prepares to note down all 72 <laughs> parts of the next question um one is cooling because I know that's affected Mercedes in the past. Two is it's always been said that the turbocharger size in the Honda has advantaged them at high altitudes. And I'm curious about the truth of that. And the last one is, and this is not assuming that Mercedes get their extra ponies from Mexico, but they have a new plenum. And I'm wondering if they have a new plenum and they have their trick rear suspension. And I'm wondering if either of those might help level the Mexico playing field. Oh, he's making, he's jumping the gun. He's making it tech. We'll allow it for the minute. No, we're not going to talk about how it works, but we agree that it's there. Okay. So was that a three-part question? No, that was, it started as a three-part question. It sort of morphed into four, but it was close to three. First off, obviously there's this um, misguided, I think, approach to the fact that we believe that certain teams are better than others at altitude. Um, And that I think has played out because Red Bull have predominantly been better at altitude, no matter whether they've had the Renault power unit or the Honda power unit. So I don't think that the altitude is a thing that is revolving particularly always around the power unit itself. One of the things that always staggers me about Red Bull at Mexico is that whilst everybody else is pretty much on their highest downforce configuration, Red Bull are never at that. They don't need to balance the car. They don't run the T-wing or they haven't done in the past at Mexico. Whereas you see everybody else literally running max downforce because of the altitude. Um, and I think that's perhaps where the big difference comes from is the the skew between aero and the power unit side of things. And as you mentioned also, obviously, we do have to deal with the problem of cooling as well. And I think Red Bull, again, have got away with a little bit of uh, less cooling on the car in order that they don't have to you know, take the penalty of drag. And I think that's where the big difference plays out with Red Bull. Um, it's just that ability to be able to run less downforce, less cooling. So they're running less of a drag penalty, um, but still got the downforce they need. And obviously we know one of the reasons that we talked about uh, a lot in the past is the difference between long wheelbase, low rake, high rake, short wheelbase cars. Um, and obviously we've got the two biggest differences between the two teams we're talking about. So that, that's obviously where um, you would also pin that. Jules, why don't you just uh, pick up uh, where you left off there? Because I know you were recalling all that stuff with Mexico. I think Brazil maybe has a stronger case for the case for the point you were making, you know, where he was literally in kind of half half an eye on beach mode. You you could say that Uh, Brazil has been somehow a special place for Hamilton, of course, historically. Um, uh, But... um, 
if you look at uh, the sentiment uh, around Brazil now, yeah. uh, it's almost like uh, it's it's Verstappen territory right now. Um, when you think of Brazil, Verstappen, you have to remember his uh, rain masterclass in 2016, where he came from P16 to P3, oh, yeah. I think. Yeah. And, uh, um, and lapped Ricardo that race, if I recall. He did. Yeah. And um, of course, he got knocked off by uh, Esteban Ocon in 2018, Ooh. leading the race. And and last year, he actually, or the last time out, 2019, he actually had a pretty commanding win um, when Hamilton uh, collided with, uh, with Albon uh, going for, uh, for, uh, for the podium and later got penalized. So, but it's a bit, it's a bit more um, even than that, because for instance, uh, the, the magical rain race 2016 was a Hamilton win in the end. And in 2017, uh, maybe people remember Hamilton had this qualifying crash. Uh, he just won the title and then he crashed out in qualifying, had to start at the, at the back of the grid. And he still managed to come in fourth, um, surpassing or passing uh, Verstappen on the track. So it's not, that much a Red Bull of a Stappen uh, um, uh, fest uh, in Brazil as as we might think. I think probably what makes us uh, feel a bit that way is because la- the last time out there is two years ago already because of COVID, mm. and that was this really yeah strong Red Bull performance and Stappen. You know he was yeah. untouchable there. Matt. I I tend to agree. I think Brazil, if they're of the next two tracks, I think Brazil would be the one to put your money on if you were Mercedes. Um, partially because their stalling of the diffuser, I think, will give them more of an advantage at Brazil. You don't, the only quote unquote really high speed turn you have to cope with there is is the run down to the start finish line. And I don't think you need the downforce to get through that. I think you can make do without it. And I think the only challenge to them will be if Verstappen can get ahead and Red Bull can gain so much time in the middle sector that Mm. Mercedes can't catch them in the third sector, which is a scenario we've seen before between the two Mercedes. Okay, and and we need to put this all in context of for the last five years, Mercedes have had outright probably the best car, maybe with the exception of mid-season 2017 2018 where ferrari might have got a jump on them but but on the whole they have had the dominant car so i wouldn't call any track a mercedes track but i'm really glad we kind of got this insight into or this reminder of some of the circumstances around the other tracks i i do think that abu dhabi has always suited always seemed to have suited lewis hamilton and his style and then we've got two completely unknown elements unknown to me anyway those of you who do motorbike cycling watching will know guitar that's the one that's the moto gp track GP. isn't it yeah. yeah that's the one and then saudi is a complete unknown looking at some pictures of the track today does it look fully baked if it was a cupcake and you press down on it i don't think it would spring fully back up me and my daughter have been making cupcakes it's very exciting i don't do baking uh, so we'll see you know we might even be in a situation where one of those tracks gets cancelled that's very possible as well so in conclusion Matt, go on, you make your point, and then I'll do my in-conclusion thing. I just wanted to add the thing that's going to be most fun about Saudi is its brand new asphalt. Yeah. And we've seen all kinds of just whack results when that has been the case. Yeah, always a good idea to resurface the the track or have a new surface just before they go racing. Okay, quickly, panel. You've got got to pick a winner. 
driver and constructors champion. Pick a winner, Jules. Stepan, Mercedes. Really? You think it's going to go that way? That is interesting. Go and follow Jules on Twitter at Jules Sagers F1. Link will be in the show notes below. It's got two E's in it. Okay. And uh, you can go and check out pictures of windmills on Instagram, I believe, as well. Jules Sagers F1 everywhere on the internet. Summers, who wins those titles? Hamilton, Red Bull. Oh, you're going the complete opposite. I, I suppose I get a guess as well. I, I'm gonna. I'm still going Hamilton Mercedes. I think. I think they've got enough in the bag. So I'm gonna go Hamilton Mercedes. Trumpets. I was actually gonna go right where Summers went. Not surprisingly, I think Hamilton and barring reliability and no crashes, I go Hamilton, Red Bull. Hamilton, Red Bull. Really interesting, guys. That wraps up the news portion of this show go and follow Jules go and follow me as well at Spanners Ready me and Jules are going to take a back seat and enjoy a glass of rum or what, what's the what's the drink of choice in, in in the Netherlands is it lager no it's just plain beer plain beer okay so you pour a plain beer I'm going to have my my rum and coke and we're going to sit back and we're going to enjoy some tech Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Well, as we all know, this has been the best week ever because the stories that have consumed the F1 social media storm have been entirely and totally tech-related, and we are blessed and lucky and fortunate to have none other than our friend Summers along to tell us what we've got wrong and what we've got right and what's really going on in that murky, dim, arrow world where tire squirt and correlation rules everything. So, Summers. Thanks again for agreeing to devote your expertise to this and to us. Not a problem. And don't worry, because you're wrong 
but first. So it kind of suits anyway, doesn't it? Kind of fits. Yes, you you are correct. Well, I think you wanted to start out, and I think everyone wants to start out with the end of the story. And by end, I mean Mercedes' rear suspension. We've seen lots of stuff said about it. I've read plenty about it. What's going on there? How big of an advantage is it really? And of the tracks that are remaining, where do you think it might actually play a significant uh, role? and Mercedes overall performance. Okay, so first of all, I want to just dispel a couple of myths, let's call them, and and suggest that whilst this is something that has been noted and obviously brought forward into the media spotlight, uh, it's a... It's a suspension element or system on the suspension that's been around for around a decade. It's nothing new. Uh, In fact, there's around... The FIA actually came out and said that there's probably seven of the 10 teams actually running this style of system within their suspension system. Uh, And so that, firstly, is, you know, uh, something that I just want to put out there. It's not new. Uh, I, I heard it called a device during certain broadcasts, and that really did sort of irk me because... As we know, uh, it's it's been around for quite a long time. Now, if you don't know what's actually happening, um, essentially what the teams are doing, it's not just Mercedes, as I've just mentioned, is that they will collapse the rear suspension in order that the car um, runs closer to the ground. Now, that has two effects because it positions the front end of the car slightly higher and also positions the rear ends uh, slightly lower. And obviously that has an impact on the aerodynamic platform of the car. Now, they're only really wanting to do this on the straights, and so you get uh, a straight-line speed boost. Uh, Now, what potentially that will do is stall the diffuser, and then that also has an impact on the angle of attack of the rear wing as well, so you can potentially lose some drag there. Um, What's it worth? probably a few tenths of a lap if you've got your car set up correctly for it. And I think that's perhaps where the big news point came from is because in Turkey, Mercedes really dialed it in well because at that particular circuit, they could get it so that their diffuser stalled. Um, uh, You know, they lost a lot of drag and downforce off of their car in key areas of the circuit. And I think that's perhaps where, you know, this, this whole story has emerged because of that factor. Right. So if I'm understanding the the way it works correctly, the big problem is tuning it. Because if you were, let's say, in um, you know, in Austin in the run to turn nineteen, those are you're going very, very fast there. And you really would not want that diffuser to stall at that moment. So tracks that have high speed turns are gonna reduce how effective that that um suspension setup can be made to be. Yeah, and, and and I think you have to remember that it's not just the, the diffuser that's stalling. It's uh, the the floor, the diffuser, the rear wing. You know, you're having an impact over the whole aerodynamic map and you're having a shift of the centre of pressure. So, you know, it's not just one area of the car that stalls. It's the, There's a lot going on in these scenarios. And as you mentioned, you don't realistically want downforce taken off of the car at a point whereby you want downforce going through a high-speed sector. So, you know, to make this work, they have to be able to tune it at a point whereby, you know, they've gone beyond the speed threshold that that high-speed sector would ordinarily um, allow them to take those corners So, uh, at that certain speed. So, yeah, it is a tunable um, element of the suspension, and that's that's where there's a, a you know, they've, they've got to factor that in. Right. So, it's, so basically, 
the higher speed the turn, the higher the speed has to be before they can start to use it that way, which limits how long it'll be useful on, say, a long straight, for example. Exactly. So obviously, if you've got a, a, a VMAX of 315 kilometers an hour and your highest speed corner on the circuit is 300 kilometers an hour, then you're not going to want to take that buffer in between those 15 kilometers an hour. You need something much you know that you need a vaster difference between the, the, the those two speeds to be able to get this thing to work as you want it to it's very much like drs you know if you want to open the drs in the middle of a corner we've all seen what ha- used to happen in qualifying back in the day when you could use that uh, anywhere on the circuit so you know it's about a usable element of the suspension and as i say i think that the biggest reason that we're seeing this talked about is because of how successful mercedes were at tuning it for a very specific set of circumstances in turkey well that brings back happy memories the days where drs could be used any place in qualifying that was some fun indeed um and i assume given the people bringing it up as a subject in the media that this would be something that Red Bull necessarily does not really do. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the problem that you have with Red Bull and probably AlphaTauri in, in that respect as well is that they run at hot, the, the highest rate cars on the grid. Uh, so obviously to, to get this effect to work, you would need to flatten the car significantly, which would mean a huge collapse of the suspension um, from a rake perspective for those guys. And then you have to think about how that has an impact on the front aero and obviously then how it shuts off and starts to reattach the airflow when you when you're obviously back going into a corner. I mean, I think the interesting point to remember here is is that the reason that Mercedes have had this working much better in the back end of the season is that they started out on the back foot. Uh, their car didn't work the way they anticipated it would going into the start of the season. Um, we all saw the, the footage in pre-season where they had a very unstable car, easy to spin in certain circumstances. Um, and I don't believe that they actually obviously expected the car to behave how it did uh, going into the season and they had to sort of backpedal. Uh, they got that updated at Silverstone uh, at the front end of the floor, uh, the barge board area, the side pod deflectors and that sort of region. And I do believe that is what has allowed them to have this sort of skewed advantage going into the back end of the season because suddenly another aspect of the car is working better. So it allows them then to retune uh, their suspension setup to get the better advantage that, that we're now seeing. Okay. And now this comes firmly from the tinfoil category. Uh, before we go on and talk about power units a little bit, I do absolutely wonder, given the amount of the amount of accusations lobbed from one team towards another, if the lobbying team is maybe trying to cover something up by putting the FIA and the other team on the defense a little bit. And if so, I mean, just would that be a tactic at all? And have you heard anything? Is that not something straight out of the Adrian Newey playbook? You said that, not me. I remember it takes no responsibility. I remember a, a story of Newey basically suggesting that he would go to one end of the car where there was something that he didn't need to look at and send somebody else to the other end of the car um, on the grid, this is, you know, back in the day, um, so that they could investigate what they wanted to see whilst the team 
that he's he's looking at their car would obviously try to cover up, you know, exactly what he's looking at. So, um, yeah, I mean, politics and the technical side of the sport has always been, um, you know, in this sort of realm. There's the, the, there's nothing new here. Um, if you can kind of destable your rival via the FIA and obviously using politics, then, you know, that's a way of destabilising the team and getting a better uh, advantage out on track. So it's nothing new. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, it's not going to change anytime soon either. Uh, going into the next set of regulations, I'm sure we'll be in exactly the same situation. Okay, well, let's have a quick chat then about the Mercedes power unit, its reliability, and whether or not 630 grams is going to allow them to indeed unlock even more horsepower than we have seen them use thus far. 630 grams. I wonder where you got that those figures from, Matt. <laughs> the internet, where I get all my things from. Okay, so you've got to remember that um, there's, a, the, the, there's obviously a homologation um, on the power units. So the teams are only, or so, sorry, the manufacturers are only able to make certain changes. But there are aspects of the power unit that are not within the parameters of the homologation rules, um, gaskets, seals, all of those sort of things. So there are some rumours, let's say, in inverted air quotes going around that Mercedes might have obviously had to make some changes um, to these specifics um, to be able to deal with the problem that they've had ongoing, not only with their own power units, but obviously that we've seen the trouble with other teams as well, the likes of George Russell, et cetera, that have picked up penalties. Um, and I think that's where the 630 grams is is coming from, is that, you know, the, the power unit has has grown in weight uh, based upon being slightly bulked out by having additional components added to it to to uh, to facilitate a better seal and uh, uh, enable it to to provide the power that it's looking to provide. Okay, now one of the questions I do have, and I've not been able to find an answer for, is whether or not uh, Mercedes has, along with its power unit upgrade, had a a fuel upgrade as well. I think they were allowed um, at least one this season. I'm pretty sure Red Bull got one with their updated spec, but I've heard nothing from Patronus or Mercedes about it. No, I've heard nothing either, to be honest, Matt. Um, I, I don't think that they're being particularly, they'll be particularly transparent about these sort of things anyway. And to be honest, we could have had it very early on in the season. That said, we could still have it later on in the season, we could still be uh, due to have one introduced. Um, as you say, I think Honda have uh, been working well with their partner and have introduced one alongside uh, one of their updates they, ha- they had earlier in the season. Uh, obviously, they've got a new ERS, uh, sorry, a new energy store uh, this season, uh, which is the first time that they've had an ES upgrade since they joined the sport. Uh, so that was quite a big upgrade for them. Um, but as we know, the fuel and lubricants are a massive component in delivering uh, the durability and the performance of the power units themselves. So if there is still uh, a spec to be able to be introduced, uh, that could potentially have uh, a decent ramification in the last five races. Mm, so maybe that might be the um, the expected ponies upgrade that we're hearing about. Now, I had wondered uh, just personally about, I know they introduced a new plenum, which is the bit that puts air into the combustion chamber, stating it simply. And I was wondering how you would then use that 
to improve the power of your engine? Or is that something that would even happen uh, at Mercedes? Am I just totally not understanding how that works? Okay, so the plenum they introduced with the new power unit specification at the start of the season. It's why we see the bulge on the side of the W12's engine cover and the bulge on the side of the AMR21's engine cover. Um, McLaren and Williams don't have those bulges because they don't pull the the body working quite as tight as as those two teams. Um, so it, it, it's a bigger unit effectively uh, than what it was before. So it has to have this uh, blister of bodywork placed over it to be able to, to, to shrink wrap it in. Um, what that potentially does is change the um, way in which the air is delivered to the internal combustion engine. Um, and also you have to remember that since 2015, um, the power units use variable inlet um, trumpets. So they could have potentially changed though, the design of those as well. Uh, and based on the plenum design, you would suggest that would be the case, uh, just purely because it makes the most sense to be able to uh, to optimise the flow within the plenum with the, the, a new set of trumpets. And so the, there could well be, um, you know, still some learning going on. What you have to remember is that although, you know, we, we they've homologated a new power unit, they'll, they'll still be learning for future seasons as well. Um, so you know, there will still be optimizations coming in for next year, especially as obviously we move into the the new fuel as well. Uh, and obviously that's going to have an implication on the design of the power unit. And is why Honda did so much this season to, to fast track their power unit design uh, and bring forward what was essentially next year's power unit for this season. Uh, so yeah, the, the plenum is different uh, from compared to last season, uh, but it has been there since the start of the season. Uh, and I th- do think that they will have obviously optimized their power maps, et cetera, around that uh, going throughout the course of the season. Okay, great. I have a couple of listener questions sort of along these lines. Uh, the first one is from C. Barry. Is Botas worse on engines than Lewis, or are they playing games to let him R- uh, RIP end of season, or is he just having, is he just like genuinely unlucky with his uh, internal combustion engine? I-, I think what's going on potentially is that. Not every driver runs the same engine maps. Uh, They will run something that is specific and tailored to themselves. And that obviously then has an impact on not only the performance of the power unit, but also the durability of the power unit. Uh, You can then obviously run into certain hotspots from a temperature point of view, um, from a performance point of view. And I think that the problem that Bottas had is um, problematic in the respect that it then meant that that engine was dead. That ICE that he first put in was just done and dusted straight out the block. So that can't go back in the pool. I know we've talked about this in the past and um, it's an important factor is that uh, the power units have pools of parts. So, you know, you can pull one part from the pool and put it on another. Um, It's not something they will do at the circuit, by the way. Uh, And Mercedes have stipulated this, that once they've... Uh, used a, a turbo and an MGUH, they won't take those off the car in the circuit. It will have to go back to Bricksworth and be done. So if you kill a power unit in transit, which is what happened effectively to Bottas, that means that everything's got to go back, be rebuilt at Bricksworth, and then be flown out. And that one engine is out of the pool now, as, as far as I'm aware. 
Um, and that's why now he, they've decided, you know, it's only five places that he, he drops every time he takes one anyway now, um, rather than 10, which is a little bit strange within the rules and perhaps needs to be looked at. Uh, yeah, um, that is true. It is five. Um, Ivan asked, um, how much of a performance advantage is there by running new power units in the final races of the season compared to teams who are racing on older but still reliable power units? Seems like some shade might be being thrown there. Um, yeah. I mean, obviously, the, the factor here is Lewis, isn't he, who's on a much older power unit compared to you know the likes of Bottas and uh, Verstappen, Perez, etc. Um, it, it comes down to the usability. Uh, there's a matrix which the teams will use to decide on how much performance that they're prepared to give up compared to how much durability they will lose for using that power unit mode. Um, obviously, this was more prevalent when the modes weren't fixed throughout a weekend. And I think that's something that people aren't really factoring in this season. It was something that was brought in last season through the technical directives um, and had an impact throughout 2020. But what I think has had more of an effect this season because of the, you know, the, the bigger calendar that we're running at. Um, and obviously that has an impact on the durability, how each of the teams are then pushing one another in terms of, needing that performance and I think that has had a massive bearing on not only how much performance they can use but also how much that has an impact on the durability we've heard in the past you know a couple of seasons ago in fact when Lewis was fighting uh, with Rosberg for argument's sake he would mention the fact let's just retire the car because he knew that obviously the more mileage you put on the car the less performance it's going to give you uh, going forward so it's always a factor that you have to play one off against the other. Yeah, and it, and it is true. Um, an older car will lose horsepower compared to a brand new car. That's just a, a fact of life. But what's, I think, interesting about this is that Mercedes, if they bring more advanced, more powerful maps to the end of the season, will be pushing Red Bull to dance on the edge of their reliability to keep up. So as much as it's a driver race, it's still so, so much an engineering race, and it's just fascinating to watch it uh, play out. I have one more question um, from David Z. Watch the recent YouTube on pistons. Why will teams not show the cylinder piston heads of this generation engine? Uh, can there really be that much variation or so little change that a five-year-old could, could give away a secret? Because we're still within the same regulation set is, is the, the real reason here. Um, Obviously, we've been using the power units since, since 2014. Uh, we'll continue to use them until 2026. That'll be a 12-year stint that we've had on the power units. And yes, essentially, the, the, these manufacturers don't want to expose anything to their rivals, um, albeit obviously it will be, there will be a massive cycle involved in them understanding and then enacting any changes that need to be put in place because of the homologation system. Um, but... You know, they don't want to give an advantage to their rivals and they don't want them to know what they've been playing at. Um, so until we get out of the hybrid era, I don't really think that we will perhaps see too much in that respect. Unless, obviously, you end up with, uh, you know, some parts on eBay um, that have found their way there uh, mysteriously through other sources. Well, we can always hope that such a thing will happen and that they'll wind up in your lap. Um Shall we move on and talk about the 2022 cars a little bit? Because we've heard some recent rumblings from Nilles and Pat Simmons that 
Well, now that they think about it, they may not really be all that much slower than the cars that we're currently racing. Okay, yeah. So I think this is a, a prime example of Formula One just basically trying to get ahead of the story. Um, because when the 2021 regulations, as they were then, were set out by FIA and Formula One management, um, they decided that you know they were going down a certain route with the this particular design of car. Um, and the target was for them to be a little bit slower to enable the cars to race more closely. However, as time has ticked on and the teams have got more and more involved in structuring these regulations, the regulations have been watered down slightly um, to, you know, to appease areas of, you know, the the teams and, and um, the designers. And on top of that, I think the bigger difference might come from Pirelli themselves as well in, in the performance that they offer up. Um, so uh, it's not just one avenue of performance that we are going to claw back that. What I'm hearing is that the, the cars that we see at the start of 2022 might only be about half a second slower than what we're currently seeing. Um, and that will be eroded very quickly. Um, perhaps two seconds quicker than what we currently have by the end of the season uh, because of the rate of development. What you have to remember is that at the start of a regulation set, we always have the biggest gain because it's where teams tend to find the performance in the biggest pockets uh, and they obviously migrate towards each other's ideas. So, yeah, I think we will have cars that are very close to the performance that we're currently looking at, hopefully cars that can race one another closer um, and cars that are getting progressively quicker as well, which will be thoroughly entertaining, hopefully. As we once again navigate to the very edge of human performance abilities, I do have to ask, are we expecting them to be as quick, but in a different way to what we see currently? Yeah, I mean, that, that will be a factor uh, because of the way that they're going to produce downforce and, and drag uh, so there will be a different. There will be different animals to drive. Let's put it this way. I know that there's been comments from Norris and Science, who've both driven the 22 car in this, their relative simulators at uh, McLaren and uh, Ferrari, respectively, and they're saying that they drive very differently um, in terms of the way that they have to operate the car. Um, obviously, we've got things like suspension regulations changing as well. And and I think one of the big factors there, especially from the driver's point of view, might be the uh, ratio of difference between the you know thick sidewalls that we have on the current tyres, which act predominantly as, as a, a huge amount of the suspension on these cars, um, versus the very narrow sidewalls that we're going to have with the 18-inch profile. Uh, and I think that will change the dynamic quite dramatically, along with the way in which the tyres might operate differently as well, because I believe that Pirelli are going to make them uh, much less thermal um, responsive uh, so that we can obviously race on them longer. Uh, But yeah, I I do expect them to drive very differently to what we currently have. Okay, Uh, so with less flex in the sidewall, would that increase or decrease sort of the peakiness of aerodynamic response, especially in corners? Ah well, there goes our bingo caller for the 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 missed apex there because we're going to say the words tire squirt, aren't we? Obviously, yeah. um, tire squirt should technically be less lessened, but obviously you're going to get a a peak 
uh, where the, the tyre deforms very rapidly, um, which, as we know, tyre squirt is very difficult to model for the teams. Um, and especially now we're moving the CFD and wind tunnel resources um, down the scale quite significantly. We're giving more of a percentage to the smaller teams uh, to enable those guys to catch up. So um, it'll be more difficult um, for the teams to model perhaps in the early stages. But as we know, they do catch up very rapidly and that could be an area or one of the areas where uh, teams gather some performance. Yeah, no, I was also wondering just in terms of the drivers, does it mean you're going to go from switched on to switched off faster than you can feel? Depends on the suspension side of things. As I say, it depends okay. on the ratio because you're going to obviously have to run the car perhaps a little bit softer to allow for the fact that you haven't got the compliance within the tyre model. Uh, so one will have to give way to the other. And, and I think that's, as I say, why there's this uh, dif- disconnect between what the drivers feel now and what they're saying that the car drives like in the simulator for 22 because they're feeling something a little bit different in terms of the kinematics of the car and the way that they have to behave going into and out of apexes, etc. Okay, well, we have some uh, 2022 questions from our patrons as well. Paige Michael Shetley would like to know, is there any initial scuttlebutt you've heard about who has had on development? Uh, like, Sort of, we heard about, you know, Honda and Braun. We heard about Mercedes and the power unit. Have you heard anything about where the teams are? And does anyone seem to feel like they have an advantage at this point? I don't think there's realistically anybody that's shouting out and saying, well, or, or I've certainly not heard anybody suggesting that they are miles and miles ahead. Um, unlike Braun, as you mentioned, those rumors were circling well before the car arrived. Um, but I think the other thing to remember is the fact that we've got this sliding scale in terms of resources as well. Uh, so, you know, the, the, the bigger teams are handicapped in some respects. So if they haven't spent some of their time this year developing for 2022, then they will have lost ground compared to those around them and certainly those that have more resources at their disposal at the back end of the grid and obviously that was brought in to try to close the gap down i don't think it will have as marked effect as the fia and f1 wanted uh, in the initial stages but perhaps over a, a you know a sustained period of time we will see some convergence towards the middle okay um the next question we have is from galen will haas be competitive next year are they using their wind tunnel time for the 2022 car is there any hope um, I could make a joke here about them using f- about Ferrari making a progress about using Haas's wind tunnel time, but that would be <laughs> a rather 2017 joke, wouldn't it? Um, I, I haven't heard anything about Haas in that respect. They will obviously have a huge amount of resource at their disposal because of where they currently sit on the grid compared to those ahead of them. Um, they should make a leap forward because this year's car is last year's car with bits lopped off of it. Uh, They've done so very little to be where they are this season. Um, I can understand why their drivers are having a hard time of it because, you know, it it is a very difficult car to drive. Um, You can, you can see that from the way in which other cars ahead of them um, struggled in the early phases of the season. um, And they obviously had development on the car. So, yeah, it will be a step forward, but is it going to be a relative step forward to the rest of the grid? I'm I'm not sure at this stage. Okay, I have one more question for you that leads us to our final topic. 
which is have we seen teams trying 2022 parts on their cars so far? Given the regulation change, is there value in trying any aerodynamic parts in 2021 or would this have too many variables? The answer to the question is no, we haven't seen anything um, from the teams from this year on on next year's car, um, purely because there is such a massive disconnect between the two design philosophies. Um, pretty much every surface on the car will be wildly different um, in some form or another. Um, I have seen actually Haas put a couple of display parts on their car for some reason. I, I, I never really got to the bottom of it, uh, but they did show the difference between the height of the tyres because um, the new tyre is actually slightly higher uh, compared to the, the current 13-inch wheel and tyre combo, so they're slightly taller. Um, they're still the same width, um, and obviously then that has an impact on the deflector that runs over the top. Uh, which we're getting for 22 as well. And they also had one of those on there. And I think it was just to display the difference um, that was going to be coming up for 22 um, because it was never run on the car and it was only a 3D printed part in in any case. Um, But it was interesting to see actually the difference in height between the the two uh, wheel and tyre combo and obviously with the deflector in place. Okay, and this is where I get to tell you you're wrong because Ferrari has absolutely stated, and this is our final topic, that their energy store and their new ERS unit is indeed for 2022, and they wanted to bring it in, as I think you mentioned Honda did with their power unit, uh, to get ahead of the curve because next season, um, uh, dynamometer testing time is limited. I think it's actually limited this season, but... They're talking about cost caps or the power units. Lots of things are going to change. So teams were desperate. And by teams, I mean uh, power unit manufacturers were desperate to get as much 2022 stuff in this season as they could. So tell me a little bit about this energy store upgrade. We've heard that it's roughly double the voltage. It's gone from 400 to 800 volts. I think they said effectively. So those numbers might not be precisely exact. What does that do for Ferrari? And why are we suddenly seeing people saying things like they clip later than any other power unit on the grid? What is going on there? Okay, so firstly, you duped me because we were talking about 22 aero, not 22 power Sorry units. <laughs> you caught, caught me out for a change. Privilege. <laughs> caught me out for a change. Um, yeah, Ferrari is an ERS upgrade. It's not an energy store upgrade. Um, so the energy store... I believe is is the same as it was before. It's right. the other components that are revolving around the energy recovery system in terms of the control electronics, um, the MGUH, MGUK, et cetera, and the way in which that they are able to share power between themselves. So obviously there was a misnomer at the start of the power unit regulation set where everybody believed that you could only use 33.33 seconds of energy uh, per lap, uh, because that's how much the MGUK could put out um, because of four megajoules of energy. Um, that's not the case. And basically, the H and the K talk to one another simultaneously so they can send energy without sending it to the energy store. So we always talk about the energy store or the battery as being very important in deployment, and it is. However, there's obviously a a sort of hole in there that you can send energy from the K to the H and vice versa, depending under which scenario that you're currently in. So if you are on a straight and you're at VMAX and you can't go any quicker, 
you could siphon off some energy from the H, slowing it down slightly, sending it to the K and deploying again, or send it to the battery, the energy store. So this is where I believe that Ferrari have made their gains is that with a higher voltage system, uh, they're able to transfer more energy more efficiently between the H and the K and to the battery store, or sorry, energy store or the battery, whatever you want to call it. Um, and, and that's where the win, the winds are coming from is that they are winning on optimization of energy flow. Uh, so that's why they can now, as you say, they don't clip on the straights as much uh, because they're able to continue to throw energy at it from the battery or from the K or from the H, whichever it may be. Okay. So before we go then, because that more than, well, I, I know we didn't talk about McLaren Ferrari as much as I wanted to, but it seems like with that upgrade, it's Ferrari versus Ferrari pit stop mistakes pretty much. Pretty much. Yeah. Okay. Um, so w- there's a couple of quick listener questions that didn't fall neatly into any categories. Um, one of them is about Alpine and the distinctive vacuum sound that the power unit makes. Do you have any thoughts about that? Do you know why of all the power units, it's the one that sounds like that? And if you say, because it's French, then I will have to remove that response from the podcast later. I wouldn't say that anyway. Um, it's just a basic um, design of that particular power unit, whether it be the way in which that their variable trumpets work, the way that the plenum is designed, the way that the turbocharger is designed, something fundamentally is different about the way in which that operates acoustically compared to the rest. We've had this discussion in the past about the way that the Honda used to sound, uh, still does in some respects. Um, When that's off throttle, it makes a, a, you know, sounds like there's a bag of nails being thrown in the inlet plenum. Um, and that's obviously down to uh, cylinder de- deactivation. Uh, so they all run these engines in different ways. And um, that is where your Alpine Renault uh, power unit just sounds a little bit different because theirs is designed slightly differently to the others um, and the way in which that it operates in within its parameters. Okay. Uh, another quick one was about the pit lane gantries and how much thought and effort goes into designing them. Um, one of our listeners, John M was at the Austin race and noticed that there are single tower designs with angled arms, double tower designs with single arms. And he just wondered how much and how long, uh, was put into designing those. Lots of money, time, research, understanding. You'll notice also that they'll have high speed cameras mounted above them uh, so that they can try to improve their pit stop times because they'll monitor the pit stops. And that includes not only um, the equipment itself, but how and where their mechanics are positioned in the pit stops. You know, is this mechanic just slightly too far to the left and so on and so forth to be able to increase the, 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 uh, their, their ability to, to, deal with the pit stop i mean i've done a pit stop in the past and can tell you it, it, it's a high stress situation um you know just operating one of the guns that feels like it's going to twist your arm off is is bad enough um but yeah there's a huge amount of um, effort goes into uh producing uh, a better pit stop time obviously we're now regulated a little bit more now this season uh, in terms of the pit stop times, but they will always try to pinch more pit stop time if at all possible because it has an impact on how long they uh, they, they take to complete the Grand Prix in total. Okay, and then um, 
The last question I'm going to ask comes to us from Andrew Smith, who wants to know, uh, he heard that Nico Rosberg and Jensen Button had an agreement not to mess with rear camber, and then Barrichello went um, when he was with Button and adjusted rear camber anyway. He basically wanted to know why would adjusting that be an advantage, and why would you want to restrict that uh, with your teammate? Um, well, I'm going to use your favorite phrase here, tires. Um, I would have thought that the biggest advantage that you would gain or lose in terms of camber adjustment would be compliance, whether that be um, from acceleration phase or just general degradation on tyres. You know, there's, there's, it's, we know the black art of tyres. There's a lot of things that can go on there. And I think adjusting camber, although it can have some other implications, I think the biggest one of those would be the performance of the tyre. All right, then. There's only one question left for you to answer, and that is, who is going to win this week's conversation? Oh, comment of the week. Comment of the week. And our contenders are Stuart Neal, Missed Apex, Never Wrong for Long. Uh, our friend Planet Bomb, Smallest Mistake, Four Second Pit Stop Leading to a Collision, which is, I think, yeah. Um, Pete, uh, Shilcock is in with, I heard Merck have fishnet suspension, just saying, and those are your choices. So which one made you laugh the most? I think we're going to go with the fishnet suspension. All right. Well, congratulations, Pete Shilcock. You have won this week's comment of the week. Comment of the week. And now it is my sad duty to say we have come to the end of this podcast. So first of all, Summers, where can we find you? Where should we go look for all of your incredible stuff? Well, the best place as always is on the Twitters and it's Summers F1 there. But obviously you can find my work on motorsport.com as well. Yeah, I think I may have heard of them. As for me, I'm at MattPT55 on the Twitters. Matt Trumpets, please go look up my wife's books buy lots and lots and lots of them so that i can stay at home and make podcasts all day long and hey don't forget about the show missed apex you can support us by clicking the patron link in the notes until next time this has been missed apex podcast See, do you know what, see what I've done there, Matt? Did you see, like, I am a good podcast parent. Did you notice my tactics? Right, I, 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 this, you guys were the broccoli. You were the broccoli, and I've mixed in the broccoli in with the mash, and the kids didn't notice at all. I'm looking at the stream figures, right, because tech time is woefully under-listened to when we do it as a, an individual thing. But when you put it in at the end of a new show, people are like, yeah, this is good content, I'm going to listen to it. But if I think for whatever reason... People don't want to click when they see the tech time. They're like, or maybe, maybe they think that they're not going to be able to follow it in some way. Is that, could that be an issue? It could be. I mean, I think as with anything, if it presents itself as complex, there's a certain number of people who'd be like, I just, I don't want to even begin to try and engage. But if they're already there, they'll be like, ah, that's not so bad. If they, if only they knew how dumb and simple Summer's made it. I followed some of that. Like, no, not a lot. Not a huge amount. I'm just saying. Just some of it. Yeah, just a little bit of it. The tire, I heard tire squirt. And I'm like, <laughs> he said tire squirt. 
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. I think one of my favorites was like, I'm going to listen to this tomorrow and Tuesday and Wednesday. Yeah. Well, I used to do that as well. With the early tech times, I used to listen to them over and over again until, until they went in. Uh, but by the way, uh, I have to say you did say conversation of the week, which you haven't done for, uh, for quite a while. I did that just so that you would have something to edit. No, you didn't. You did it because you made a mistake. Admit it. On purpose. You admit that and admit the world. On purpose. Admit the driver's championship is the most important one. It's the only one anyone can. Just admit. You can do it. <laughs> I know you can. <laughs> <laughs>